0: Well, please take a seat. Well, can I extend uh, my welcome uh, to Andrew's. Happy Easter. It's great uh, for you all to be here. And it's especially great if you are here for the first time uh, this Easter Sunday. It's terrific to have you with us. Um, it, it, really is, it really is great to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus with you. As we come to God's word now, let's ask for his help to understand it in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can celebrate today the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is raised, that he has conquered death and sin, and we now have the promise of eternal life in him. Please help us to understand the truths of the resurrection now afresh as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. You should have been given uh, a handout when you came in, it looks a bit like this one, and it might help you to just make reference of that as we go uh, through the talk uh, drop, uh, yeah, and drop down some notes. So today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, how after, how after three days after he had died on the cross, he rose again from the grave victorious. But I'm sure we know that many people aren't actually celebrating the resurrection today. Many friends and family, possibly, who aren't here with us this morning celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. I remember a conversation that I was having uh, a few months ago with a friend in London? We were talking about the gospel, and um, uh, we got onto the topic of the resurrection. And I asked my friend, so what do you make of it? And he said, oh, I, I don't believe it. I, I, don't, I don't believe Jesus was raised. He had a very interesting account to tell. Uh, he thought that actually it was Judas who was killed on the cross. Jesus never really died. So that when people saw him after what they thought was his death, they thought he had risen. But it wasn't really true. That was how, what he made of it. He didn't really believe that Jesus was raised. Now, of course, that's not the latest false idea going about about the resurrection. In our passage today, we have the earliest of false ideas about the resurrection that was spread amongst the world. Come back with me to verse 57. Let me read from verse 57. When it was evening... So Matthew has given us this brief account of Jesus' burial. Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple, we're told of Jesus, is introduced to us. And this is the only time he appears in the Gospel stories. We're not told a, a great deal about him. We know from the other Gospels that he was on the Jewish council. But he was one of the ones who was against Jesus being crucified. We're told where he comes from. He's from Arimathea, although we don't actually know where that is today. And we know that he was a rich man. He was wealthy. And Joseph, we're told, goes before Pilate and asks him for the body of Jesus. That's a very brave thing to do. It was quite dangerous to be associated with a crucified man. After all, at this very time, Jesus' disciples are away in hiding, fearing for their lives. Well, thankfully, Pilate doesn't make too much of a fuss about Joseph's request. He agrees to it and commands that Jesus' body be given to him. Now, friends, that wouldn't have happened unless Jesus was definitely dead. There was no way Pilate was going to hand over Jesus to anyone while he was still breathing. We know from Mark's Gospel that Pilate actually checked with the centurion who had witnessed Jesus being crucified to confirm that he was dead. Only then did he hand over the dead body of Jesus. So Joseph, having received the dead body of Jesus, took it and prepared it for burial He laid it in his own new tomb, and he secured the tomb by rolling a large stone in front of it, which was just usual usual practice in those days to stop wild animals from disturbing the body. So Jesus was laid in the tomb of a rich man, in the tomb of a rich man, just as the prophet Isaiah had predicted hundreds of years before. What we read about in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 53. We read about the Saviour whom God would send to deal with the sins of his people. Let me just put up verses 5 and 6. I'm sorry it's very small, but let me read them for you. From this prophecy, Isaiah says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, these verses speak of what Jesus accomplished on the cross when he hung there for us. In his love for us, he willingly took the punishment that we deserved for our sin, for all the ways in which we've rejected God's rightful rule over our lives And decided we are going to be the boss. And later, in verse 9 of this prophecy that we read, Isaiah says of this same man, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah speaks of his grave being with the wicked. Because Jesus was considered a criminal under Roman law. But his grave was also associated with a rich man who we know from Matthew's Gospel is Joseph of Arimathea. So even the events that surround Jesus' burial were a tes- testify to who he really was. The servant that we read about in Isaiah, whom God had promised, who would suffer to save men from their sins. Well, back to the story. During this time, whilst Joseph had been putting Jesus in the tomb, the two Marys had been watching from a distance. These are the same two Marys that we read about earlier in verse 56, who had watched Jesus being crucified. They were actually there, watching him die. Well, now they were sitting Opposite the tomb, watching him being buried. Jesus was dead and buried. No doubt about it, he was dead. He was buried, he was in the tomb. But now, Matthew transports us to the following day, and to a scene that couldn't be more different than the loving burial that Joseph devoted to Jesus. Come with me to verse 62. Let me read under our second heading, Conspiracy Theod, verse 62. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So it's now the Saturday, the day after Jesus' crucifixion and burial. And Matthew Matthew reveals to us what the chief priests and the Pharisees are up to. These were the ones who wanted Jesus dead all along who had collaborated with Judas to capture Jesus secretly. The ones who had given him an illegitimate, unfair trial, supported by the testimony of false witnesses. The ones who had handed over Jesus to the Romans and stirred up the crowd at his hearing to the point that they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! So were these men celebrating now? Now that Jesus was dead and in the grave? No, they weren't. They weren't celebrating, they were actually worried. Uh, They were worried because of some words that Jesus had spoken earlier in his ministry. You see what they say to Pilate in verse 63? Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And they were right. Jesus had warned them during his ministry. We can read about it back in Matthew 12, how he would be in the ground for only three days. But their great concern wasn't that Jesus would actually rise again. Jesus had said he would, but they didn't believe him for a second. See how they describe him? Refer to him as the imposter in verse 63. Just a fake It's not Jesus' words that got them worried, but what they thought his disciples would do with them when they heard them. You see, they saw the possibility of a conspiracy, that seeing their Jesus, their Lord, dead and buried, they would take matters into their own hands. They would steal his body and start rumours that he had risen from the dead. And it was this possible conspiracy that they feared. So what did they do? Well, it was obvious. They had to make sure that no one could get into the tomb of Jesus at least until the end of the third day. Jesus said he would rise again after three days. So if the body was still in the tomb after three days, then the religious authorities had won. They would have proved that Jesus was no more than this imposter, a a fake. A false messiah. So they asked Pilate to make the tomb secure. And they didn't want to use any half measures while doing it. Now only a group of experienced Roman soldiers would be adequate. Now by this point, Pilate was probably really sick and tired of the issues surrounding this man, Jesus. Jesus. The trial from the day before would have been weighing in his mind. He had gone against his own conscience. He had delivered Jesus over to be crucified, even though he knew Jesus was innocent. He knew Jesus didn't deserve death. Pilate probably just wanted it all to go away. So as soon as he hears their request, he permits it. We read what he says to them in verse 65. You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. He effectively tells them to take the Roman guard that would have been stationed at the temple and use them to secure the tomb of Jesus. And that's exactly what they do. They go down to Jesus' tomb with these guards. They seal the stone so that it can't be moved. And then they post the guards right outside. There was no way a few disciples could get to the body now. Of course, little did the religious leaders know that by taking these extravagant measures, they would actually be strengthening the case for Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus is dead. He's been buried. He's in the tomb. And it's been secured by the same people who had him killed, who plotted his demise. And another night passes by. Come with me to chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So again, the two Marys are back on the scene. But it seems they were totally unprepared for what would happen next we're told there's a great earthquake, uh, earthquake, an angel descended from heaven and rolled away the stone which had been so carefully sealed to the tomb. Well, so much for this extravagant security force that the Pharisees and the chief priests had prepared. Uh, the soldiers, they could have easily dealt with a few zealous de- disciples. But an angelic being, whose appearance was like lightning, who rolled the large stone that had been sealed away from the the tomb as easily as we could move a chair. And then he sits on this large stone. Well, them seeing that, it it was just a bit too much for them to stomach. We're told they became like dead men. They fainted from fear. Battle-hardened Roman soldiers fainting from fear. And when the women saw what had happened, they were naturally quite frightened as well. But it's not long before their fear is accompanied by great joy. Because this angel has amazing news for them. See what he says in verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. The angel hadn't moved the great stone away from the tomb in order to let Jesus out. He had moved the stone to show the women that the tomb was empty. He wasn't there anymore. The space where Jesus' body had laid, now empty. Jesus has risen, just as he said he would, just as he had told the religious leaders, and just as he had told his disciples as well before his death. Earlier, Matthew chapter 16, we read of how Peter, when he first declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as soon as that happens... Jesus immediately starts to tell his disciples what it means for him to be the Christ, what it means for him to be the promised Saviour King whom God had sent. Let me just read from Matthew 16, verse 21. It's on the screen. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And on the third day be raised. And now, here, in Matthew 28, at Jesus' resurrection, the empty tomb, we have the fulfilment of those words. Jesus was exactly who he had claimed to be. The Saviour King, who God had promised to his people in the Old Testament, The Son of God, who by dying on the cross took on himself the sins of the whole world, so that by depending on him, we might be forgiven and have eternal life. All proved, all proved by his resurrection, because Jesus, as he said he would, has now risen from the dead. Well, this wasn't something that the women were to keep to themselves. They were to witness the empty tomb, and indeed they did, but the angel also commands them, verse 7, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. The women obey, and as they run to tell uh, Jesus' disciples, something even more amazing happens. They come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus himself. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They touched Jesus. They took hold of his feet. They took hold of his actual feet this was no spirit or illusion that they were having. These women held the same feet that had been nailed to that cruel cross two days before. And as they bow down before Jesus, worshipping him. But Jesus, he doesn't want them to stay with him. He echoes the command of the angel again. Verse 10, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there you will see me. So the two Marys hurry on their way to tell the disciples the great news. Jesus has risen. He's alive. But some of the guards, who had now woken up, were running in the opposite direction. They went back to the chief priests in Jerusalem and reported everything that they had seen. Guards report to the chief priests the incredible events that had happened that dawn. The earthquake, the angel from heaven, the rolling of the stone, and what would have been for the chief priests the greatest shock of them all. The issue that they feared most. Jesus' tomb was empty. The body was gone. So how do they react? What do they do? Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the chief priests, they go and consult with their elders and they quickly work out a new plan. They wouldn't acknowledge the resurrection of Jesus. They wouldn't accept the facts. Their only concern was damage control. Because they knew if the news of the resurrection got out, the people would turn to Jesus as their Messiah. And they would lose that one thing that they coveted most. Their power and influence over the people. So they come back to the guards and they say to them, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. I think it's a, a bit ironic that they seek to blame, uh, pin the blame on the disciples, given that they had worked so hard to prevent the disciples from stealing the body in the first place. By sealing the stone and putting the guards around the tomb, the religious leaders had actually shot themselves in the foot. They had made Jesus' resurrection more believable. I mean, what are the chances that the disciples would have been able to break through the seal and move this large stone without waking the soldiers if indeed they were asleep? and if the soldiers were asleep how could they have identified the disciples as the ones who stole the body anyway and the actual idea of the guards falling asleep in the first place was very, very unlikely because falling asleep on duty as a Roman officer was not a laughing matter especially when they were put in charge of guarding something they could face the death penalty for that kind of incompetence. So the chief priests have to bribe the guards with what we're told a sufficient amount of money. It would have been a large amount of money. And they assure the guards that they wouldn't be held accountable for this made-up story that they're to spread amongst the people. Even if their own governor, their own boss, Pilate, found out, the chief priests would satisfy him. All the guards had to do was take the money and peddle the lie, And that's exactly what they did. They took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The soldiers ignored the significance of the events they had witnessed. They just wanted to play it safe. They just wanted to stay out of trouble. And the false story that they spread was believed by many Jews both in Matthew's day and beyond. We know from historical accounts that this same story was still circulating many years many years after. And now in 2010 the resurrection is still treated with great suspicion. There are many people, like my friend back in London, who just won't take it seriously, won't accept the facts. I think the question we need to ask ourselves today, this morning, this Easter Sunday, is how have we responded to the resurrection of Jesus? Who do we identify with most in this story? I think some people today are just like those chief priests, the ones who had all of the evidence for the resurrection before them, but just wouldn't accept it. The soldiers had reported to them what had happened, what they had seen with their own eyes. How the tomb was empty. It all pointed to the truth that Jesus was raised. But the chief priests chose to deny it and spread a lie instead. Not because the truth didn't make sense, but because the impact that the truth would have had on them if they acknowledged it would have been so great if they had recognised Jesus as the Messiah, they would have lost what they coveted most. Their power and influence over the people. That's what they really cared about, their place of authority. I wonder if we can identify with them. Are we resisting Jesus today because we want to be the boss? Not necessarily the boss of others, but at least the boss of our own lives. Well, friends if that's you here today please reconsider where you stand with Jesus he is now the risen king enthroned empowered in all authority and you won't be able to resist his rule forever one day you will have to answer to him Jesus' resurrection proves that he will be the one whom God judges the world the one who through whom God will judge us. And if we choose to reject him now, by resisting his rightful rule over our lives, and rejecting the rescue he offers us from God's judgment on our sin, then he will condemn us on that day. Because our sins, they won't have been paid for in his death. No, we will have to face the punishment for ourselves. Please, don't be like the chief priests that had all the evidence but resisted Jesus. They wouldn't accept him as their Messiah, as the true risen King. But I'm sure there are others uh, who may be here today who are a bit like the soldiers. And their most concern, their greatest concern, was playing it safe, wasn't it? Staying out of trouble, no matter what. The soldiers took the money and obeyed the boss even though it meant denying the resurrection had ever happened and spreading a lie instead maybe we're a bit like them maybe someone or something is keeping us from accepting Jesus as our king maybe we have non-Christian family and we're afraid that if we become a Christian if we accept Jesus as our king they won't respect us anymore they'll be really unhappy Or maybe we're worried about what our mates will think of us at work when they find out that we've become a Christian. Friends, accepting Jesus might mean troubling times for us in this life. We might be called to sacrifice much in order to live with him as our king. Might be money, might be the respect of family or something else that is very precious to us. But friends, denying Jesus would be a far worse option. Because we would be forsaking what is most precious. Eternal life under the blessing of his perfect loving rule. There is nothing in the world that compares with that. Don't forsake it for something that you will still lose when you die. The cost of denying Jesus as Saviour and King is just too great. Don't be like the soldiers. Instead, why not be like Joseph of Arimathea? He was willing to be identified with Jesus, even though it could have cost him a great deal. Might have seemed foolish to his friends at the time, going to Pilate and actually asking for the body of Jesus. But Joseph was actually very wise. He knew that the cost of not honouring Jesus would be far greater than the cost of suffering for his sake. If there is something precious that is keeping us from accepting Jesus as your king, friends, please let go of it. Please, please let go of it. It's not worth holding on to if it means rejecting Jesus. Finally, there are the women in this story, and I hope that most of us can identify with them today. The ones who responded to Jesus in the right way by bowing before him in worship. If we've done that, if we are truly worshipping him by depending on him for our salvation and living with him as our King, then great, keep going, keep trusting in him. But we should seek to follow their example. As well. Because the women, they didn't only worship Jesus in adoration by bowing at his feet. But they worshipped him through declaring his resurrection to others as well. That won't always be easy. As we've seen today, there will be real opposition to the news of Jesus raised. Not everyone will accept the wonderful message that Jesus has died For our sins and been raised again and he is now enthroned as our Saviour King we should be prepared for our friends to reject that message but if we are truly disciples of Jesus we will seek to make him known to others that they might have the opportunity to know and trust in him as well we'll be looking at the importance of evangelism of making the good news of Jesus known next week But finally, brothers and sisters, let's join these same women in rejoicing today. They ran from the empty tomb with fear and great joy. And we, like them, have a great reason to rejoice. Because Jesus is raised. As God's son, he has taken the full punishment for our sin in his body On the cross. We know that's true. Because he is raised. Because he lives. He has conquered the power. Of sin and death. For us. By by destroying it. And burying it. In his own death. And then rising again. To new life. So that as we trust in him. God no longer counts our sin. Against us. Our guilt has been removed we have relationship with our heavenly father and the promise of eternal life well let's rejoice in that today let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you did send your son to die for us while we were still sinners and you have given proof that his death on the cross worked by raising him from the dead. Thank you for the sure hope that we have in Jesus. Help us, Lord, now and always to respond to him rightly as our Saviour and our King, as we look forward to eternal life in his name. Amen.